Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turco. And my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape a space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity navel-gazing and political pablum by giving voice to good, hard-working people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning into this special episode. How special? I mean, pretty special. Special to me, for sure. It could become special to you. It might become special to you. I'll bet it becomes special to you. I reckon it's special to me for, for two reasons. First, it's special because I had hoped to get this fella on the podcast since I launched it three years ago. But circumstances conspired against us making it happen. Uh, that is till now, of course. And it's also special because I had the pleasure to record this podcast in the workshop of today's guest. I'd always hoped to record more podcasts in the workspaces of my guests, right? To explore the work and the workplace itself. And I got to do that. So it's special. It's pretty sweet, really. I got some sweet messages from y'all about Barack Obama and his new Netflix series, which, uh, as it turns out, is inspired by my very own North Star, Studs Terkel. Yeah, I mean, after all these years, seems like old Barry is still riding my coattails. But I don't know, what's the next president going to do if not take a free ride on the Lazar train? <laughs> I don't know. I got a bunch of messages from y'all saying I ought to reach out to Obama for some kind of collaboration. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the idea, y'all. You know what? You know, you're right. I'll just give Barack a call. And if he doesn't pick up right away, maybe I'll just ask Biden to whisper in his ear about your proposed Lazar-Obama collaboration on working. That'll do the trick. You know what? You know what I'll do? If Biden doesn't answer, I'll just text Michelle. She'll definitely take care of it for me. That'll take care of it. What do you, who, do you, who, who do you think I am? Come on, y'all. But listen, to answer your question, my dear listeners, no, I haven't watched Barack Obama's working, but I am legit glad that Obama's lending his voice to documenting the experiences of real folks doing real work because this whole work landscape is about to change. Like magnificently. Anyway, we'll see. Summer break is around the corner. Maybe I'll tune into the Obama show then. I'm sure old Barack needs all the help he can get. Oh, poor Obama. A guy just can't catch a break. <laughs> you know who can actually use some support around here? This guy. You can't see me. I'm, I'm pointing to myself with two thumbs. Listen, this is a listener-supported podcast. And if this podcast is valuable to you, I got news for you. I can't do this thing without you. So follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you like what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if For a Living means something to you, and you got the means to give a few, please, with sugar on top, support me over at patreon.com slash for a living. Linked to it in the show notes. Always grateful for whatever support you can give. Lots going on around here. 
Had some out-of-town guests. Shout out to the one and only Scott Robin and his fam. My baby girl and I are both wrapping up the school year. She's going into grade five. Crazy. And I'm going into year 24 of teaching. It's bananas, y'all. Bananas. You know, I wrote about Scott's visit. And I also wrote about one of the, um, how should I put this? Uh, one of the idiosyncrasies of my teaching gig in Berlin in my newsletter last week. Uh, in fact, my friends, I write a newsletter every Friday. And if you want it, sent to you by me for free. You, my dear listener, just head over to daniellazar.substack.com. That's daniellazar.substack.com. Also linked in the show notes. Every Friday morning, it'll just show up in your inbox for free, like that. How about that? Now this, like I said, it's a special podcast episode. It's rich, it's informative, it's a sweet conversation with Jacob Weitmuller. Jacob is a friend and a maker of fine instruments, mostly violins, also some violas and cellos. We talk about his process from selecting the right wood to fine-tuning the finished project. Well, you know, we also explore the process of doing repairs and adjustments, which I couldn't have imagined it before I hit record on this podcast. This whole repairs and adjustment thing is endlessly fascinating. We focus a lot on, uh, we'll call it the promise and the peril of pursuing perfection, eh? which seems to be Jacob's motivation and his chief frustration. Uh, we talk about a lot of things. This is a long one, but worth it for sure. So please join me in conversation with Jacob Weitmuller. All right, you ready, buddy? Yep, let's go. Jacob Weitmuller, welcome to For a Living. I'm really happy to be with you. It's a pleasure, maybe even an honor, to be in your workshop with you, surrounded by beautiful instruments. We've been hoping to do this for a while, and I'm really grateful that we're making it happen. How do you describe what you do? I make, restore, repair, and sell violins, violas, and cellos. And I have to say, you're the only violin maker I know, a maker of fine instruments you are. It's kind of a unique job, and in part for that reason, I'm really curious how you got on this path and like what made you choose to devote your career to making fine instruments. I went to a Waldorf school where... And there we have it. That's the answer. I went to a Waldorf school and now I'm a violin maker. <laughs> <laughs> where I, I was exposed to several different mediums of our art, whether it's, it's the wood shop or clay, using a loom, painting and so on. And so when I got this opportunity to work at a shop, at the local shop in Kingston, Kingston, New York. You're how old? You get an opportunity 13. to work at 13 years old. How did you manage to get a job working at a violin shop at age 13? My mother. You, she, she knew my, this person somehow? It was, my, it was our local violin shop that I went to with my violin. 
um, the shop, it, it was a, or is, was a calm, relaxed environment where there's good music, good food, good yeah. people, yeah, awesome craftsmanship. And so much more pleasant than being at school, I could imagine. You were 13 years old. That's middle school. It's a nightmare. <laughs> was the shop sort of like a safe haven for you in a way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, later on, definitely. Um, that first summer, it was a place that had air conditioning. <laughs> um, as well as being able to work with wood. So was this part of your family tradition? Like, was your father a violin maker? Was your mother a cello maker? Is this something that was like in the, the family lore somehow? Well, we have musicians and my great-grandfather was a violin player. My grandfather was a trumpet player. My uncle is a, in the music world. My father plays piano. But no, I, no one was making. And were you musical as a young person? I tried to be. Do you try to be? For a while. Did you love music? I love music, yeah. I don't like practicing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The struggle's real. So you're 13 years old. You've been studying at a Waldorf school. You, through the support of your mom, get into this violin maker shop. What's the name of the shop? Kurtz Violins. Kurtz Violins in Kingston, New York. And you're spending the summer there. Was it kind of love at first sight? Did you have to warm up to the idea of, of doing, you know, laborious work as a 13-year-old? No, I didn't really have to warm up. It was such an inviting environment. Tell me about it. What was the environment like? Well, there's Edward Kurtz, who was the head of the shop, who would be working on some instrument or repairing an instrument. There was another maker there at the time, and then later on there was an, a third maker who who was there also learning. And so there was always a an interesting vibe yeah. of of people making and and. Did they take to you? Like, were they interested in you? Did they show interest in you? Say yeah, thirteen yeah, year old? Every, yeah. Everybody showed interest. And that feels good when yeah, you're 13 was, years old, well, right? Yeah. Like the, the older guys who, you know, show an interest in your development and in you as a human being. Were you getting that at the Waldorf school? Did you feel supported there? Were you a good student? Did you feel like you had a safe haven at school as well? Or was the violin shop in a way sort of like the reprieve from... the Well, in school I felt I had support. The violin shop was, it gave me the, it, it wasn't something I had to do. Okay. It's something I chose to do. And I fell into it and then, and then I chose to do it. And, and out of many reasons, out of the environment, out of, out of the craftsmanship, the food, music, and <laughs> it's, it's a, it was, it was a larger picture. It wasn't just one thing. It was walking up the stairs, the smell of the shop. Um, yeah, it was, it was its own world. Yeah. And, and you took to it almost immediately. You're 13 years old. You spend the summer. Where does the story go from there? Like you go into high school, do you stay connected to the shop? 
Yeah, so after the, that first summer, um, Edward asked me if I wanted to build a guitar. And I'd go in on Saturdays throughout school and work on this guitar. And I believe it took me about a year and a half to finish, but I did finish it. The thing that I really liked about it, or still do, is that especially then it was such a large project to build a guitar for me that the idea of actually finishing this thing yeah. and it being something you can use and play and that was really satisfying and awesome. How did it feel when you held that guitar and played it for the first time and it was done? Did you like the way it sounded? Yeah. Do you still have it? Yeah. Stupid question, but I'm a stupid guy. Did you name it? No. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so disappointed by I'm that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got to hear the story and uh, poor no. thing doesn't have a name. Well, we can talk after we record, you know, about a proper name. I know that Lucille's taken, but other than that, I'm pretty sure the lexicon's wide open. How old were you when you finished the guitar? 14, 15? Probably 14. Did you stay in touch with yeah, Edward I, in the I shop? Yeah, I ended up then building a violin, which ended up becoming my senior project. You stayed at a Waldorf school through high school? Yeah. So your senior project was a violin? Was a violin. Do you still have the violin and the guitar? I still have both. You haven't named either of them, just putting it out there, but you still have them both. <laughs> really quick, when you look back on those instruments and you hold them, do they stand up to your standards now? Can you be proud of them? Or are they just like totally, like, totally like the work of the amateur? The, vi the violin looks like a caveman made it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against cavemen. But... No, no, they're, you know, respect to the ancestors. And what about the guitar? That's a bit better. It's a bit better. Yeah, yeah. All right. Are they in the shop here? No, sadly they're not. Okay, I want to see them. Are they in Germany or are they in yeah, the in US? Germany. Okay. So you make the guitar and then you make the violin and that's your senior project. So you graduate high school and this craft, this art, this process has been part of your life through your adolescent years. You have to make a choice about what you're going to do for a living. Did you know at age 17, 18, when you graduated from school, like this, this was the path? Yes. You were really confident. Yeah. It took me a couple of years to actually get to school for it and, and to actually focus on it a hundred percent. Was it a hard thing to commit to? Like the notion, like I'm going to devote my studies to this and my life to it. No, I just had a lot of other things going on. Okay. I ended up in Amsterdam for a year and went to school there at a woodworking school. But it wasn't really the right thing for me because it was such a general woodworking school. I learned a lot. But at the end of the day, I wanted to go to a violin making school. So I came back to the States. Um, then I worked as a stonemason with some friends for a while. As people do, you know. Yeah, yeah why not? <laughs> this was also in New York? Yeah, this was also in New York, okay. um, which was really cool to do. Bunch of Waldorf pals? Bunch of Waldorf pals. <laughs> I can imagine it. Somewhere around Kingston? Uh, it, this was a little bit north of Kingston. Okay, where New York starts getting pretty. Yeah. yeah. All right. And y'all were doing this. And how old were you when you decided you have to do this? You take the plunge, you go to violin making school. Well, right before I did that, I was working at a... Uh, furniture slash woodworking shop 
where I learned a lot, I spent probably nine months there. But I realized that at the end of that summer that or, or earlier that I really should probably go to school for violin making because that's my real passion. Yeah. And I can't wait in the course of this conversation to hear like how and why you're passionate about violin making. I have to say, our listeners don't know this, like I'm looking behind you at a bunch of beautiful violas. There's violins on the table. I'm starting to feel some of your passion for these instruments, despite having never played a string instrument in my life. So I'm really excited that we can do this. So you choose to go to school to follow your passion, which is what I wish everybody would do. And where do you end up studying violin making? In Boston at the North Bennett Street School. At the time it was in, I believe it's Little Italy. Okay. The program is how many years on average? It's three years. And you're living in Boston. It's the early aughts and you're really leaning into it. How many students go to the school? Um, well, it's so it's a big school that, that has everything from locksmithing to furniture making to jewelry, piano tuning. I've never heard of this. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be Googling some North Bennett Street School information. Was it a great experience? Yes. Yeah, it was a, it was a great, challenging, definitely challenging experience. What were the challenging facets of going to violin making school? Focus. Mm. Staying focused yeah. would be one of them. But also having to work having to really work to get to a level that that I that I was happy with how many classmates were in your cohort of violin makers the, there's 12 people in the class they're all at different levels or years um in my year five people started okay and there are just a, a couple of instructors i presume there's one there was one one instructor was this person as supportive as edward was back in kingston yes D- in a different way in a different way were you able to get out of that experience what you had wanted to get out of it and develop the relationships you wanted to develop i think at the at the time i felt like it could have been more yeah but looking back now, I think that's exactly what I needed. I, the fact that I felt like I needed more then pushed me to keep learning yeah, and keep going and keep practicing and keep... One of the, the big things that I really studied was trying to look at a violin and understand what I was looking at. Even when I finished school, for the most part, I'd look at a picture of a violin and it looked like a violin. Didn't matter who made it. Um, okay. And so that's something I really studied for the last 10 plus years. It's like having a, a clear eye, a clear vision for what you're looking at. Just a small question, sheer curiosity. Was it a competitive environment? Because there's not that many violin makers. The 12 of you in this class, like... On some level, you're going to be working with, but on some level, working against each other. Was it a really cooperative vibe? Was it a little more competitive, or was it just kind of complicated? I would say probably both. Yeah. At least that's my feeling of it. Yeah. Do you stay in touch with 
most of those 12 folks. I'm in touch with a few of them. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I have to ask, I have this vision and I, I want it to be inaccurate. Were they all dudes? There was two women. Okay. 10 out of 12 guys. Give or take over the years, things changed, but it was overwhelmingly. It was, it was overwhelmingly men. Yeah. But that is changing. I hope so. I imagine it is. Yeah. Here's to more of those changes. So after three years at the North Bennett School, having some, if I'm hearing you right, you know, generally positive relationships, you matriculate with a degree in violin making. What do we call the degree? Well, I was a very slow student, so I didn't even finish in the three years. Sure. I, had to, I had to finish my instruments. Um, I actually finished them in Germany and then went back. I believe I finished about a year and a half later. Okay. So four and a half, five years later, you get your certificate from the North Bennett School in... A certificate in violin making. In violin year. making. I just wasn't sure if it was in fine instruments because you make violas and cellos also, but the, the certificate is in... You are a certified violin maker. I believe so. I, I haven't looked at the certificate. <laughs> I, well, I'm a certified lunatic, and I haven't looked at my certificate <laughs> in a while, but for perhaps more obvious reasons. Um, I suppose our listeners might be interested to know, because we've taken you from New York to the Netherlands to New York to Germany, that you have two wonderful German parents who raised you in New York. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess for our listeners, we're going to be going back and forth, perhaps, in our conversation between Europe and the United States. But this is just the nature of your life. It's the nature of your biography. It doesn't require a whole lot of explanation. And I don't imagine that we're going to fill in too many of the blanks. But I think it's probably best for our listeners to know that there are some interesting blanks that don't necessarily need to be filled in in this conversation. Right. You're large and you contain multitudes. You're a transatlantic guy. Okay, so you complete the work for your certificate in Germany. You got the stamp, you got the paperwork, and you've been making mostly violins, some violas and cellos for several years now. And I guess I kind of also want our listeners to know that we are in your workshop in some kind of industrial corridor right next to a highway a block or two east of the Charlottenburg Palace, the summer residence of the Prussian nobles. Um, It's a part of town that I'm not really familiar with. I don't come around here too often. I'm curious, like, how you ended up here of all places. How'd you find the shop? Well, like most good things, um, my wife found it. Yeah, um, she's awesome. Also a podcast alum, <laughs> yeah, right? Kate Mueller was on the podcast season seven, six, six. She's great. Everyone loves Kate. She found it. How? She found it online. There was a an, an alone standing building. And um, yeah, so I got in touch with the owner. He told me I could come look at it. I looked at it, said I wanted it. He called me back couple days later and said I had it cool I showed up he took a look at me and he was like oh I meant the other Mueller wait wait what 
There's another, another Mueller called? Um, there's two brothers that have a wine export-import business. Okay. And uh, so that, that kind of dampened the mood <laughs> so a he, little bit. So he, he rented the place you wanted to two brothers named Mueller. Yeah. Awesome. But then he, he mentioned that he had a loft studio that was for rent as well. And it ended up being a much nicer, better place for, for what I'm doing. So is the freestanding building you're talking about, the yellow one that we can see from right the up. first floor here? Yeah. Okay. And so they're selling wine. They're, they're selling wine, yeah. That's convenient. Yes, it's very convenient. If it weren't a Sunday, I'd say we should go buy some. <laughs> and you have this studio, which is kind of lovely. Um, dear listeners, we're surrounded by fine instruments, violins, violas, and cellos. There's also a beautiful looking, though I learned very quickly, not beautiful sounding piano. I hope you could do something about that. <laughs> if you ever invite me over, I'd like to be able to play the thing. And um, there's a workshop uh, with a couple of workbenches and a bunch of tools that I don't know the names of. It's kind of a cool space. Do you like the studio? Do you like the space? It's my happy place. It's your happy place. One of my happy places. I'm happy to be here with you. Maybe you can do this for me. Like when you're working in here, what's kind of the vibe? What's the feel? Are you playing music? Are you playing podcasts? Is it totally quiet? Are you usually alone? Are there people around? Tell me about what your workspace here feels like on an average day, if such a thing exists. Well, to back up a little bit, a couple of years ago when I started the shop, um, pretty much right from the beginning, someone who had started working at the last shop with me or was doing a practicum at the last shop, called me up and asked if he could come and work at the shop as well. And so he's been with me from pretty much day one. So I work together with one other maker. Wait, is this the cat that I met when I visited last week? What's his name uh, again? Viet An. Viet An. I yeah. like this guy. He's chill. He is, he is very relaxed. Um, is that the vibe of the shop? Is it a pretty chill... For the most part, it's very chill. Okay. Um, is Viet on here most days that you're here? Yeah, he's here all week. So you two are working side by side most days? Yeah. What time do you get in to the shop? I, I generally get in around 8, 8.15, 8.30. Okay, you got about a half hour, 40 minute commute, something like that from your, your home. You pull into these gates as I did, like, you know, it's a gated industrial corridor. You put your code in. I won't tell the listeners what it is, but I do remember it. And the gate opens and you come on in and you're at your workbench by 8, 830. Right. And how long of a day do you tend to put in on an average workday? I would say eight to 11 hours. So you get out of here after rush hour, you'll work from eight to eight to six, something like that. Yeah. Most of that time you're with Fiat on. Talk about that time a little bit. We we will talk every once in a while, but mostly if I'm in the zone, I focus best if I'm listening to a podcast or an audio book, sometimes music. But generally it's pretty quiet and it's very focused unless I'm we're, we're bouncing ideas back and forth or I'm 
showing him something. He is something of an apprentice, not a, in an official capacity, but you're teaching him. Yeah. yeah. You said that this space here is one of your happy places. What about it makes you happy? I made it the way I want it. Yeah. It's calm for the most part, unless I'm the one not being calm. <laughs> um, it's calm regardless of what's going on inside of your head, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I know that. I feel that. <laughs> I get that. I do that. It is calm. That was the idea. I mean, and and on an ideal day, it's 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 not cluttered and cleaned up. That's the way I like things to be. Yeah. In practice, it's not always the case. There might be some wood shavings on the ground, yeah. <laughs> right under my feet right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now that we get some sense of the vibe of the joint, a vibe which I'm glad that you enjoy. I really like being here. It's nice. It's a nice little space. It's unique. I haven't been in any spaces like it in my life. So if nothing else, I like the uniqueness of it. You said that you make instruments, you repair and adjust instruments, and you sell instruments. I think maybe we should talk about all of those things. I will confess to you that I might be most interested in making instruments, but that could change over the course of our conversation. Maybe we could start there. I have no idea where to start, actually. I know that you have to start somewhere. I'm going to take a guess, all right? <laughs> and I'm sure I'm going to be wrong. Um, in order to make a violin, it starts with somehow procuring the appropriate wood to make the violin. Is that true-ish? Yeah, that's a good place to start. <laughs> okay. How do you procure wood? Uh, I buy it from a handful of wood dealers that are around Europe, mostly. Uh, it's, it's maple from Bosnia, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. I can't 100% say where the maple's from. And the spruce is from northern Italy. And where are these shops? They're mostly in southern Germany, northern Italy. It's close to the, where the wood is sourced. Okay. And so you, I assume you drive down there. How often do you have to make pilgrimages to southern Germany or northern Italy in order to procure the wood that you need to do what you do? I haven't done it in a while myself. Viet An went down to, um, to the dealer last, along with other friends, to pick wood, um, who I trust to do that. Um, okay. So yeah. it's been a while since you've been yeah, down there. I, it's, it's running a shop and doing everything at once. It's, it's hard for me to find the time between family. Yeah, in addition to your awesome wife who we mentioned, shout out Kate, you got a couple kids running around and you got a full, rich, beautiful life. You don't make it down there as much as you used to. Can I, despite that, get you to talk a little bit about what it is like to be down there and choosing wood? Yeah. Um, the, the main wood dealer that I used to go to, um, 
was relatively chaotic. <laughs> okay. The wood was not organized. It basically meant that I had to sift through wood and find the ideal wood or the wood that I liked. Is it a big warehouse? Is it a it's medium-sized a, a, warehouse? Yeah, it's a it's a medium-sized warehouse um, with piles of wood that's stacked relatively neatly, and then you have to go through that. One piece at a time. What are you looking for? Through the aesthetic of the wood and the the weight density of the wood. Those are the two main things that I... Pick it up, you look at it, you feel it. Do you actually physically weigh it or measure I it? I w- weigh it and measure it to to get the density of the wood. Okay. Um, and how many pieces of wood ideally do you come back with from this fishing expedition? As many as I can fit slash afford on okay. that trip. And so you get a, a trunk full? Yeah, or trunk, seat down. Okay. I'm going to be a little nosy, but whatever. It's my podcast. Um, <laughs> Are prices negotiable? How do you kind of make that whole thing work? Because like when these things are kind of priceless, does every piece of wood have a price tag on it? It can't. No, it's it's it, it probably depends on I mean, how much you buy. It varies. But you bring a stack of wood up to the guy at the counter or something. I don't even know. I, mean, I don't want no, to picture no, it like it's yeah, Costco. No, it's 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 mostly the. They come over and they look at the end of the day. They go through it and they're like, this is this much and this is this much. And then. And is there a negotiation or you just pay what they tell you to pay? I'm not the best negotiator, so. <laughs> Me either. You just so, pay what they. So I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so terrible at it in part because I'm uncomfortable at it, which is in part because I don't do it. Yeah, I'm, 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 my father was the uh, negotiator and. I'm impressed, and I remember seeing him negotiate with people, but it also made me feel uncomfortable. I'm getting better at it, but... Yeah. yeah. So despite there being a lack of stickers, you pay your sticker price, you load up your car, you put the back seat down, and you bring this wood back to the shop. Is it ready to roll once you're back at the shop? Is like the wood ready to work with upon your return to Berlin from Northern Italy or Southern Germany? So there's different ideas on, on whether or not you can use the wood right away or not. Uh, I, I tend to leave it as long as I can, whether it's a minimum of six months to as many years as I can last. Okay, so the, the wood's better to just sort of sit. Yeah, I, I try to buy wood that's already been sitting. Okay. And I don't, I, for the most part, don't buy fresh wood. Does it have to be treated here or it just has to no, sit? No, it, it just sits in air. So in the room that I didn't see in your workspace here, there's piles there's, of wood. There's, a, there's shelves and it's just, it's stacked. All right. So you have a piece of wood. It's been sitting here six months, maybe a couple of years. And you need to make a violin. Sorry, I should stop myself. About how many violins do you make in a given year? 
At the moment, yeah. around four, okay. five instruments. Four or five violins, maybe a viola a year. Yeah, maybe a viola. And it's time for you to start a new violin. You have the wood. How do you develop a vision for what you want to do with that piece of wood? I go backwards. I, I, I guess I, I look at the model or maker or style that I want to work in, and then I pick the wood on whether it's the density, the aesthetic, usually both. So when you are in that shop trying to choose a piece of wood, you're choosing a piece of wood for an instrument that you already have a vision for. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Who do you choose to model yourself after? The only name I know, the only name maybe our listeners know is Stradivari. Is he the guiding light? Are there other guiding lights? There's there's a handful that are there, but I started off with, in school, we mostly did um, Stradivari instruments, Antonio Stradivari. He had a really nice, clean, beautiful model, models of instruments. While you have other makers like um, Guarneri del Gesù, who had different periods in his life where in the beginning he worked relatively clean and then it got rougher and rougher and rougher and and was based more on from my point of view he at the end of his life he was more focused in on sound than aesthetic I've no idea what he was thinking because it was 300 years ago but yeah. from what I see from what I see when I look at an instrument like that, especially the later ones, he focused more on the arching the and the outline, the positioning of the F-holes, everything that I see as what makes the sound beautiful and good. And the aesthetic stuff was wilder. The scrolls and the F-holes and the, the inlay were just kind of done very quickly and rough. Okay. The F-holes, incidentally, are the holes sound, in the sound front holes of, of, the, of, of the instrument. Why do we call them F-holes? Because it looks a little bit like an F. It looks a little bit like an yeah. old-school cursive F. F. Cursive F. Okay. That's why we call them F-holes. Yeah. I don't know these things. Yeah. I'm, you're talking to an uncivilized brute, but I'm sure you were aware of that prior to our sitting in front of these microphones. So you have a model that you're in dialogue with. It could be one of the greats, a couple of centuries old. It could be something maybe a little more contemporary. And you've got your piece of wood and it's been sitting for six months, maybe two or three years. Where does that process begin? Probably making the mold first, unless I've already made the mold, but let's just say I'm making a brand new instrument. I'd probably focus, I'd, actually I'd have to back up a little bit. I have been um, drawing the instrument first. By hand? By hand. I still haven't figured out how to do it with a computer, but I actually like doing it by hand. Neither did Stradivari. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I draw them by hand. So when I'm drawing the instrument, 
I then later on decide whether or not if, if it's symmetrical, 100% symmetrical, or if I'm making a, a so in when I mean symmetrical, if I'm making a copy of an old instrument, they'll have their imperfections. They're, they won't be 100% symmetrical. And so I have to decide whether or not I want to copy those imperfections or if I want to start with a clean slate, meaning it being symmetrical. Can I ask, were the old instruments symmetrical when they were made 300 years ago and the dint of time and weather and handling has made them asymmetrical or were they made asymmetrical 300 years ago? Do we know this? The construction was different than how it's done nowadays. Um, the construction was done that you'd start with a rib structure, you bend the ribs, thickness the ribs, bend the ribs, and then you connect the neck scroll to to the rib structure. And so the way that it was connected, the neck was connected to the rib structure through glue, and then they used nails to either to help hold the, the neck together okay. to the instrument. Okay. And in order to connect the nails, you have to take the mold out of the rib structure. Okay. And so then you have a free, free rib structure, which moves. Huh. I mean, it moves a millimeter or two. I mean, it can, well, you can move it a, a several millimeters, but so in order to get a, a straight neck, to get the neck to be lined up straight, you, you can move the rib structure slightly to straighten the neck. Of course, you try to nail or glue, connect the, the, the neck to be st as straight as possible, but there's a lot of movement going on. This is probably a question for later in the conversation, but I've never interviewed a violin maker before, so the order of operations <laughs> might be a little... You and I have seen violin players attack their violin, right? They play these things so hard. They go to war with these things on some level. How do you account for that when you're thinking about how to construct it? I try to, to account for that as much as possible. Yeah. There's also the aesthetic part. So I antique a lot of my instruments. Most all my instruments are antiqued. So you have to, there's that fine line of e how much you wear the wood so that the musician hopefully doesn't wear it too much as well on top of what's been worn. I try to find a fine balance where it's not too worn. So if the musician then hits it, hits the instrument with a bow or it, it doesn't create a, a major repair. Small follow-up. You said you antique most or all of your instruments. What does that mean exactly? Making a brand new instrument look hopefully two to three hundred years old. How do you do that? You wear it by in different means. You you wear the varnish by by scraping, wearing it with different materials. What do you scrape it with? 
there's specific tools for this? I mean, one simple one that I use is duct tape. To, really? Yeah. To, it is the solution to all our problems. <laughs> to, to remove var, uh, varnish, it creates an interesting uh, texture to the, the varnish. I find the, that antiquing is actually really fascinating because you can try and really understand what happened to the instrument or imagine what could have happened. Obviously not duct tape, but... Um, <laughs> But how it was worn, how the instrument was, what kind of case they used to have, these wooden cases that you just slide the instrument from the top down. You can imagine that the wear to the back might have happened through that, or if it was put down on a table, the wear of the scroll, the wear of the F-holes from setting the sound post in the instrument, and so on. And so you're almost trying to like reenact Re, yeah, you're trying to reenact a couple hundred years of as, light damage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to ask duct tape. I love that. Is there one more sort of trick of the trade to antiquing the instrument? I try to use as much as possible things that actually could have antiqued the instrument. Whether it's a bow that then does the marks on the top. I try not to do too many marks because you can overdo it and then it looks, in my mind, a little bit overdone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So all of this kind of goes into like your style, like your mark, the Jacob Weitmuller violins and violas. I suppose that every violin maker has their own style and I imagine that style evolves over time. As things are now, could I get you to maybe describe your style of violin making? I like to work, um, I don't know if assertively is the right word. Uh, I shoot first and ask questions later. And sometimes it, when it works, it's awesome. Uh -huh. and, or I'm mostly happy with it. Um, I'm never 100% happy with... Sure, sure. We can get I always that. feel like I can do better. Okay. But that's how I work. I work with a, at least on my new making. Your style is amb ambitious. It's assertive. That's it. Yeah. I, I feel like if, I, if I'm working that way I, and I don't take too much time to think about each little step, the instrument looks like it has more of a flow. Are you sort of a risk taker in a way in your building? It sounds like when you say shoot first, ask questions later, are you a little gutsy, if you will, in your style? Yeah, not really on purpose. It's just the nature of who you are. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I go for it. And for, first, I would say that I probably procrastinate a long time <laughs> um, thinking about an instrument whether or not I feel like I can execute the design that I want. And then when I start, I just, I kind of just go for it. Okay. I have a question about this. This is something I have a problem with for me. Is it procrastination or is it thought? I would say it's both. Yeah. It's probably thought. I mean, you're really, there you, is some actual just procrastination walking around <laughs> circles, Yeah, yeah. but, <laughs> but th that's part of the process. It's part of the style. Like you have to agonize over it a little bit, right? 
Yeah, and I will sit and look at photos and plaster casts or actual instruments to get an idea. And then at some point, it might even be not even the first time I build the instrument. It might be the second time I build the instrument. Usually is second or third time where I actually then start to... I will have just finished one part of the instrument, whether it's the F-holes or a scroll, and then I'll look back and be like, through through actually making the instrument, through doing the work, I will start, or I feel like I get it, I get a better understanding how it's done, and then I might actually redo it. Right. Sometimes. Sometimes. All right. So there's a lot of research. There's some procrastination. There's a lot of thinking, but then when it's time to execute, you can be pretty assertive. You go hard, you shoot first, you ask questions later. Yeah. I like this as a description of your style. Yeah. Or shoot and ask questions at the same time, but <laughs> it doesn't always work out. <laughs> yeah. I just got a vision of what that could look like in a literal scenario and that um, it's not good. It's very bloody, actually, in my mind's eye. It sounds it sounds probably rougher than, but it's, it's yeah, one way of trying to explain my way of working. No, I like it. I really like it. But in part because of the agony of procrastination, in part because you think about these instruments very seriously, in part because you're really doing fine work, I would imagine that you develop a real relationship with some of these instruments. And I wonder if you've ever developed such a strong connection to an instrument that you've made that like you didn't want to part ways with it. No, I I have no problem parting ways (laughs) with my instruments. I, I like to see them when they're back in the shop, if they come, especially after a half a year or a year later, I'm sometimes pleasantly surprised. Because I generally look back and think, oh, I could have done this better, I could have done that better. And then sometimes it comes back and I'm like, well, it's actually, maybe I zoned in too much on certain aspects of what I thought it should or shouldn't look like. But at the same time, while I'm making the instrument, it's, yeah, it's a love-hate relationship because it's it's a constant evolving process. Yeah. Of trying to make what I, what I have visually in my head. Right. I'm curious about this intermediary step between the time you complete an instrument and the time you sell it. it. You have to play it. You have to listen to it. You have to adjust it. Do you play it to get it to be the sound that you want? At some point, do you have to call in a ringer who's a, a real violinist to play the hell out of it before it goes out in the world? How does that work? I, I, so I have, I have, um, I have a couple of friends that, that I would generally call to, to play the instrument, to get a sound. Um, Vietan plays the cello. Okay. Um, I will play it myself, but I feel like I have a better idea of how the instrument sounds if I'm standing in front of the instrument as opposed to having the instrument directly underneath my ear. Ah, of course. Okay. And, and so th- that's a discussion you can have with a musician, what they, I mean, because they're also hearing it obviously right underneath their ear. 
um, unless they bring another musician and then they can stand in front of the instrument. And so it's, it's a balance of trying to figure out what the musician wants to hear directly underneath when they're playing the instrument right? and what the instrument sounds in front in what room it sounds. I mean, from room to room, it sounds different. If you're in a hall, it sounds, yeah, it sounds, it, it may sound very powerful in here and not so powerful in, in the hall in the philharmonic or the opposite. Even. So do you then have to bring the instrument to a couple of settings to kind of get a sense of how it will perform in different if I, if I have the option of being in a hall, then doing the adjustment there is ideal, I would say. Yeah, I would imagine. So you have to do the adjustment to get the thing to market, but you also have a buyer and the buyer is going to want their adjustments also. So do you do adjustments before you set it down for sale? And again, when someone comes to buy it, you adjust it for them? So I adjust it the way I think it should be. And sometimes the buyer will just like it right off the bat. Usually it takes a little bit of adjusting, but um, it's, it's, it's from case to case, it's, it's different. So, I mean, there, there'll be some that I spend a lot of time with. Whether some violins or some customers or both? Both. Okay. <laughs> no, but whether it's my instrument or, or another modern instrument, I, I, I will sometimes spend a couple hours or over a course of days doing adjustments, trying different strings, trying... The, the thing that I'm trying to get across to some musicians or customers, if they don't already under, know or understand it, is that an instrument has so much potential to have different sounds that you can adjust it the way they want it. I didn't even think about the strings thing. You have a world of options of different strings and restringing the thing, though it takes a little time. I'd imagine you do it pretty quickly. How many different string options there's, are there? There's a huge amount. Like infinite, right? Yeah, Ma there's, a, there's a huge. And I, I, mean, I have a handful of strings that I try. Yeah. Um, they're pretty expensive. So, I mean, there's that. And you can only use them so many times if you're taking them on and off. So when we're talking about adjusting instruments, whether to make it sound the way you want it to sound or to make it sound the way a client wants it to sound, what are the different things that you can adjust? I can adjust. So there's a, a post that's in the instrument. It's, it's basically, it looks like a wooden dowel. Mm-hmm. Um, that gets put in through the F-hole and it's standing between the top and the back and it creates vibrations. Okay, so you can pull the thing open and you can adjust the post. What so are the I other can adjustments? Take it, there's there's an, a, a tool that you put through the F-hole and I can move that post up and down, back and forth. Oh, you don't have to take the top off to do no, that? No, no, no. It's not glued. It's, it's standing in there. It's just wedged in between the top and the back plate. That's not glued in? No. Oh, I didn't so know that. that I can do relatively quickly. Okay. Um, then there's the bridge that you can carve different ways to get to, to adjust the sound. Uh -huh. There's the strings. I have a general idea of how I think it's going to be if I 
put the post in a certain area or carve the bridge a certain way or do the arching a certain way. But at the end of the day, I find that it's, it's, um, you have to try things out and it's becoming more and more of a, that what I think is going to happen actually tends to do what I want it to do <laughs> yeah, yeah. to a, to a certain extent. Experience helps. But sometimes it does, I have to do the exact opposite of what I thought needs to be done in, in adjusting, whether it's with the post or the strings. Sometimes I'll think a string that is marketed at, to be really powerful um, actually does the opposite. Huh. There's, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, there's so many components to how an instrument sounds that, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's a polyvariable equation. And on top of that, you have the sort of subjective problem, if you will, of how it feels in the musician's hands and how it sounds to that musician. And they have their own sense of what they want it to sound like, which makes me want to ask this question, like on some level, it's a subjective experience, perhaps on every level, it's a subjective experience. Someone comes in to buy a violin or to have their violin adjusted by you. They need to explain to you what they want adjusted and they have to use words. And I, in my mind's eye, imagine this to be rather difficult. Is there a shared vocabulary that you have with seasoned violinists so that you can understand more or less precisely what they want adjusted? And that's always a, a fun conversation because uh, one, whether they use the word colors for for the sound or um, it can vary from... Music, uh, musician to musician, what what they mean, and so you're trying to figure out what the sound is that that they want. And they might say, "I want it to be more colorful," or will they share with you a color that they more want it colorful, to be more colorful, more more power, less power. Uh, there's the lighter, brighter, darker, colorful. Right. And then you mix the languages on top of that. Right. You're speaking in metaphors. Yeah. In it, a couple in, in German and English and whatever. Um, and so what you're trying to do ultimately is arrived on a shared language or at least a shared set of metaphors to that, create that, a sound. Yeah. And that that's always a lot of fun to try and... Is it fun? Yeah. I, I think it's a lot of fun doing sound adjustments. It's not frustrating. It can be frustrating. But Mostly it, fun. But again, it's like building the violin from you get, if you get the result and you get that the musician's actually happy yeah. with the sound and they're comfortable and they can then focus on their craft. Yeah, that's, that's great when that works out. I mean, to be a little bit pushy, but you know me and I can be. So there. <laughs> I understand that it's results oriented and that getting the desired result that you and the musician can both be happy with is fun. I'm curious if that process of adjusting the instrument and having that conversation is also fun. Is it just fun when you reach the eureka moment no, and everyone likes the sound? No, the process is 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 fun too because I mean 
there's so many vari variables. We we did this test. We've done this a couple of times, but when I see an instrument, I'm already influenced how I think the instrument sounds. Well, if I turn my back and hear two or three instruments played, I've gotten it wrong. Yeah. If you can really find a way of really just focusing on the sound, that's the ideal way of doing it. Do you do that with clients, like kind of blind sound tests? Yeah, I mean, it's a little harder because you have to get two musicians. And then it goes from musician to musician. One musician will make the violin sound a certain way. So, yeah, the, again, there's so many variables that are in this. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what makes it interesting. It's yeah, part that's, of the reason. That's, uh, that's what makes it interesting. And also, just like the actual making aspect, you'll learn something. And, and again, I, I will change my view of how to do an adjustment over time. Right, right. You're evolving. You're evolving. The way we talk about these instruments is evolving. So clients come in, they make appointments. Uh, we should tell our listeners that like, well, we said, already said there's like a, there's a gate with a code, but you're not in like an area of Berlin that anyone would like willingly walk by. It's not like in the center of town. Your shop doesn't get any foot traffic whatsoever. So if clients want to come, they make an appointment, I, I, I presume, right? They, they, they generally make an appointment. Sometimes they just show up or walk in. I've had a few people walk in off the street, but generally it's by appointment. Okay. And so these people generally make an appointment and they're seeking repairs. They're seeking adjustments. I guess maybe just a small question, like about how many clients enter the shop in a given week and what are they mostly looking for? It varies from week to week. They usually like to come all at the same time, funnily <laughs> enough. Okay, ballpark me. Ballpark, I don't know. It can be between 10, it can be 5. I mean, it's... Okay, it 5 varies. to 10 clients five to come 10, in. 10, 20, I mean, it, it varies. It's a, okay, and I know this could vary also, but they might stay for a few minutes they might stay for a few hours they, yeah they might what are they usually coming in for um sound adjustments people looking for instruments i mean i have a large selection of modern made instruments from several different makers i'm looking at them so they come in for sound adjustments they come in looking for new instruments we talked a bit about the types of adjustments you make and again, I know the range probably varies, but I do want to ask, on average, how long does it take for you to sit with a client to make a sound adjustment? I It can be really quick. It could be one adjustment and they're happy with it. And they could be from 15 minutes to a couple hours. The issue with sound adjustments is that after, I would say, a half hour, it's harder and harder to hear because it just your hearing go. It's it's it takes practice to 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 be able to hear the the different nuances of sound. And at some point, I don't know if you want to say the hearing gets tired or the yeah. It's, it's just so I I think that a half hour is ideal, and I'd rather than 
do it on another day. You'll invite them to come back. Yeah, and we, the thing is, we'll adjust it here, and sometimes it'll work perfect in the hall or in whatever room they're playing, and sometimes I might have to meet them in a hall or the ideal spot where they'd like to play. So it 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 depends. It can take several over a course of several days. Huh. I have to say, it didn't even dawn on me that part of your work is traveling to a hall or to someone's living room or to their music studio to hear what it sounds like there and to do adjustments there. That's not altogether uncommon, is it? I don't know how many other makers do that. (laughs) Um, It takes a lot of time and I don't know how financially... I don't do it often, but I will do it if if the, the player wants that. Yeah, it's just part of the quality customer service that you offer. You're selling fine instruments. You try to give fine service. Will you offer that to them? Like if they seem after a half hour or 45 minutes and you're having some decision fatigue and you're having some ear fatigue, for want of a better word, will you say like, hey, if you really want, I can come by the Deutsche Oper or I could come by your living room and... Maybe we should just hear it where you most play it. Yeah. Okay. And occasionally you'll do it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also really cool to be in these places. Yeah. I'd imagine so. So you sit with them, you, you stay patient with them. You know that the time is limited because of the, what are we going to call it? Oral fatigue, the the listening fatigue. Mm. So you're you're really dialed in. They're really dialed in. Everybody knows that there's a limited time of like effective working on this adjustment, right? Yeah. And you might not want to answer this, but here I go. About what percent of the time can you make the client happy with an adjustment within an hour? It's actually been quite successful. 80, 90% of the time you can, you can get I them mean, there. With, it's okay. Yeah, you don't have to no. be humble. I just want to know. I haven't I, the slightest I mean, idea. I, mean, I don't know. That might be luck. That, <laughs> but it's been, it's worked out relatively well. Okay. That's cool, man. I mean, cause I, it could have been 20% and I would have been totally empathic with that because arriving on. There is a, there's a percentage that where it's just more work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean. Being a player, I think, has so many stresses and anxieties and whatnot that I think that trying to have your tool work the way you want it is probably is part of the process. So I see dealing with some musicians that that part of it's also just the stress of everyday. I mean especially players that are looking for, for, for jobs in orchestras, they're competing with so many other players to get one spot. Yeah, so, so it's, it's, it is a, a high-stress situation. It can also not... It it's, goes back and forth, but I think that sometimes it's, it's, it helps the musician just to be here and to, and to just focus in on the sound can also just be a stressful situation and thinking about, oh, I have a concert tonight. I have gotten the phone calls or text messages on a weekend where like uh, the 
the instrument sounds horrible. I need help. Yeah. And then... And you just get over here. You're like, yep, let's make it happen. I'll be there in an hour. For certain clients, you'll make that happen. For certain clients, I'll make that happen. And it, yeah. And then, and hopefully I will make it the way that they want it. And it's worked out. I have to say, it didn't dawn on me for a second in advance of our conversation today that you really have to walk with people who are navigating very high stress situations, auditions, public performances in cherished spaces and they're afraid that their instrument doesn't sound anything like what they need it to sound like to get the job or to please the audience, to please themselves, to keep the job. And there can be an acuteness to it. Fine instruments, fine players. These are like really sensitive situations on some level. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I feel for them. Yeah. Um, I would never want to be in that position. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's pretty cool that you can meet them where they're at, literally and metaphorically, and uh, make that happen for them. So we're talking about adjustments here, and I didn't imagine in thinking about our conversation that I could actually spend the whole day just talking about adjustments with you because I'm finding myself deeply interested in this. There's this loosely related side that we're going to call repairs. What are the types of repairs you do on instruments? Like how do violins break and what types of things do you have to do to fix them? A lot of it's um, regular maintenance refinishing, redressing a fingerboard where the strings have tend to leave marks on the fingerboard itself. So you have to re smooth out the, the, the fingerboard again. Yeah. Um, to cleaning the instruments. And then it goes into bigger repairs, whether it has a crack in the top of the instrument to replacing a neck there's different reasons why you'd replace a neck, but the latest one that I did, the neck was too long. And so everything from like um, giving some stitches to doing open heart surgery. Right. I mean, it's there's several reasons why you would do, whether it's someone fell over on stage, which has happened, um, and dropped the violin, or a microphone came from the ceiling and went through the top of an instrument. To, I mean, there's there's several different... Okay. And you do repairs and adjustments, not just on your own instruments that you've made, but you do repairs and adjustments on 300-year-old violins, on other people's violins and violas, right? Yeah. And so if you're going to have to do the equivalent of an open-heart surgery, it might be on a spectacularly old violin and you have to navigate all of the problems associated with that somehow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> is it, is it harder? Do the stakes feel higher when you're dealing with, um, if I don't feel like I can do the repair, whether it's a 300 year old instrument or a brand new instrument, I will tell them to go, go to a different shop, different maker. There are restorations that jobs that I, would prefer not to do 
uh, out of several different reasons. A, I, so, so restoration on its own is you can go really deep into it. And that takes a level of patience that I look up to. There's, there's <laughs> restorers that, that are just amazing. So in addition to repairs and adjustments, there's restorations and that's its own sort of can of worms. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's certain, I've, I've done some big restorations and it's, it's, um, it's a lot of fun. Okay. When it, when, when there's the flow, when I know what's going on, when I can understand it. But like I said, it, it, it can get, it can get very, it can get really complicated. It can also, there's also just tedious parts to it that I'm not sometimes a huge fan of doing it. And then I prefer to give it to a colleague. Yeah. So you can feel comfortable sharing work out, whether it's because you think it's too complicated or because you don't have the time for it or because you just think maybe there's someone who might be better at that. Yeah. And there's a community, I guess, of violin makers that you're networked into yeah, I have I have too much respect for an instrument when it comes to repairs to have an ego. I, I feel like it. If I don't feel like I can do it, I'll send them to a handful of of makers that I 100% trust and tell them to go to them. Because I I guess I, I I try to know my limits. Yeah, you got to bring some humility to this work, right? And whether it's because you're dealing with a 300 year old instrument, or because you're working on too many other instruments at the time or because you want to go on a family vacation and the time ain't right. Like it's, it's very real, right? There's life. I mean, I mean to get, uh, yeah. I, and, and to get back to what you were saying, is, is there more stress working on a 300 year old instrument? Yeah. To a certain extent, yes. But at the same time, no, because if I know how to do it, then I know how to do it. And then quite honestly, when I'm working on an instrument, whether it's 300 years old or, a year old, I try and treat them the same. So Jacob, I respect the humility that you bring to the craft and I admire the respect that you have for these instruments. It's kind of awesome. And I imagine that that has a lot to do with how and why you've developed the client base that you have. One thing that we haven't talked about yet that I'm curious about is how you connect to clients that want to buy modern instruments, whether they're your instruments or instruments that you have here in the workshop that you're selling on behalf of others that I assume you're taking in as part of like a commission process. How do you connect to clients? How do you get them here? Well, there's different ways of connecting with clients, but the, the one that seems to work the best is word of mouth. Still exists in 2023, apparently. It works better than anything else. Uh-huh. No matter how much I work on my website and <laughs> put out posters, I would say probably 70% to more is, is probably word of mouth. Okay. And so for that reason, you really are committed to giving like the best service, having the most meaningful relationships because you really do rely on exactly that. Well, I I don't know how you feel about Germany, but I feel like customer service is (laughs) 
how do I put this nicely, doesn't really exist or they don't really understand. You kind of have to... The nicest way to put it is that the customer service in Prussia does not exist. <laughs> yes. Because you're so dependent on word of mouth, you really have to like lean into the customer service side of things, I suppose, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, I try to make it as comfortable as possible so we don't have to think about anything but like that it's a nice environment and that the musician or, or player or customer feels super comfortable. When people come in to the shop, which is what, like maybe 80 square meters? It's not yeah. a huge shop, something no, like that, right? 80 square meters. What's that? About 80 square meters. Yeah, okay. I'm getting good at this. The the meters and the uh, the size. So about 80 square meters. It's not huge. And it's full of instruments on one side and on the other side there are three workbenches um a nondescript room in the back when clients show up you, you offer them coffee tea whiskey all of the above <laughs> is there like a customer service thing yeah i i mean i try to offer them something to drink and we're sitting on the couch do you try to get them seated yeah i i Try and feel feel out the vibe, I guess, of and and. Okay, so if they want to stand uh, along the workbench and you're on one side of the workbench and they're on the other, that's cool. If they want to come sit down on the couch, you're cool with that too. Yeah. And some customers will want to try out instruments if they're trying out instruments, and have me stand there and get feedback the whole time. And some want to be left alone, which is both is fine. There's no. Yeah. Right and so way. what we're trying to get into here, what I'm trying to get into is what I'm loosely going to call salesmanship, but I'm not a hundred percent comfortable calling it that both because of the gender nature of the term and because like it's only part of what you do, but part of what you do is trying to sell instruments mm -hmm. and, and you're not just trying to sell them any instrument. You're trying to sell them the right instrument for them. And I guess I wonder, like, how do you help clients to navigate their biases and their expectations to find the right instrument for them? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I, I, you really have to try and feel out how the customer thinks. I try not, if, if the customer is open to, to hearing my opinions on that modern instruments actually sound better or just as good as a really nice old instrument, then I will do that. But they have to be open to that. And if they're not, then um, I prefer to just have them figure it out on their own. Okay. By trying out these instruments. I mean, the instruments that are here are all made by the top modern makers. I mean that that's one of the my goals was to get a, a a shop where I could sell modern made instruments by some of the best makers in the world and to show that modern instruments are just as good if not better than old instruments. And when you're talking about modern instruments, you're talking about instruments that are about how old? 2 to 3 years. 2 to 3 years. There's some that are maybe a little bit older, 10 to 15 years old, but for the most part, relatively new. Instruments that have been made this century 
more or less modern instruments. I see over here you have a, a dozen violins. These are all for sale, I assume. Yeah. Of this dozen, how many have been made by my man, Jacob Weitmuller? One. And the others have been made by colleagues, friends, people in the community. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So most of what you're selling in the shop right now are other people's instruments. They've all been made in the last 10 or 20 years. Some of them in the last year or two. Yeah. Most of them. Most of them, yeah. Okay. All right. So a talented violinist comes in who you connected to through word of mouth. And they want to get their paws on these violins. They want to hear it. How does that process work? Do you have them play all 12? So there's different, so there's different um, ways I will do it. If the musician comes in and says they already have a, something they're looking for in either maker or sounds that they want, I will put those instruments aside. I put them on a table. I don't tell them who made the instrument, how much the instrument costs, and have them play through and do it relatively quickly. Okay. So like, I don't know, 30 seconds per instrument. And it, and then it becomes process of elimination to find the instrument that you most connect with or they most connect with. So they play all 12 of them real quick, like again, trying to avoid that same sort of listening fatigue that you spoke about and we were talking about adjustments. And then they tend to narrow it down to, I don't know, three two, or four. Two or three. Two or three. Okay. And then they play those for, for a few minutes each. A few minutes to, it can take up to an hour that they'll play on these instruments. Will you make any adjustments per request or generally not? Usually not in the first round. Okay. Because, I mean, if they try the instrument out for a week or two... Usually a week is enough. Um, and they say, okay, this instrument sounds great, but I'd like more warmth in one string or I'd like it to have a slightly darker sound or a brighter sound. Then I will do a, a, an adjustment to the instrument. And I could actually, if, they, if I feel like they're very serious about the instrument, then I will adjust the instrument. I'm not sure if I caught something you said. Am I hearing you right? Will you lend an instrument to someone to bring home for a week to see if they're cozy with it? Yes. Oh, wow. Because it's spending a lot of money, usually the amount that a car costs or more. Um, All right, I'll ask. How, how much do these things cost? What's the range? Ten to, let's, let's say ten to 30000 Okay. And up. We can go up from there. Yeah. What's the most expensive violin in this room right now? I believe 25000 Okay. It's a real investment. And beyond that, like you're legitimately interested in making sure that they're happy, that they have the right instrument for them. Now, that makes me think like... The right instrument for them might not necessarily be the best instrument per se. Like you might look at a, a violin, I believe, you can tell me if I'm close here, and be like, ah, this one's like constructed 
better than that one. This is actually a, a better violin. Uh, no, no. No. So the ideal is that most of these instruments are constructed modern and up to the highest standards. Everything in here is a great instrument. Yeah, I guess I, I guess any every dealer or or sales person would say that all their products are the best. But what I'm trying to say is that these instruments all are constructed to the highest level. Okay, so it really is just a matter of preference taste. and fit and taste. And so what you have to do is to get clients to find not the best instrument, but the best instrument for them. Yes. Is that hard? It can be. Do you have a lot of clients that are in their teens and early 20s and, you know, kind of aspiring and they don't necessarily know what the best instrument is for them or the best instrument is for them at that particular time? I think that if... if a and that it really goes across the board. If a musician doesn't know what they're looking for, they have to figure it out for themselves. Sometimes they'll have a professor that will guide them in the right direction. Sometimes they already know what they want. Um, regardless of age. Regardless of age to a certain extent. I mean, th these instruments are relatively expensive. So usually it's people that know that they want to do this for a long period or are very serious about it, even if they are amateurs. Yeah. Okay. I guess, I don't know if I'm not finding the right question. I'm getting some insight from you, but I guess I'm wondering, maybe this is what I'm wondering. What's the hard part and what's the fun part about getting the right instrument for the right person at the right time in their career? Maybe start with the hard part and then get the fun part. Well, it's both. Um, the, the hard part is the fun part. Yeah. The okay. Hard what part is it? Is the, it can. It, I mean, it can. Like everything, it can. The hard part is rewarding when. When. Let me back up. I guess the musician kind of figures it out for themselves. I'm not here to to convince them to buy an instrument. I don't. I don't actually want to be that salesperson that says this instrument is the best instrument for you and you will be God after when you play this instrument and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I, I want them to figure it out for themselves. And if they're happy with the instrument, great. If they're not happy with the instrument, that's fine. And I've had musicians come back with instruments from different shops and they've been looking for a half a year for an instrument. They'll find it, find an instrument. They'll ask me, is this the right instrument for me? And I'm like, you have to tell me that. Yeah. I can tell you if it's constructed well. I can tell you if it's a good-looking instrument. If the price is okay, those questions I can answer. But at the end of the day, the musician needs to decide for themselves. And I'd rather work with them and be happy with an instrument. And I feel like I'm trying to build a level of trust with musicians so that when they buy an instrument, they feel comfortable and they feel happy with their decision. Okay, so you're not just a low pressure salesperson. You are a zero pressure salesperson. You really are just trying to build the relationship and get them something that they can really be happy with. Well, I, f I find that that works. I myself don't like to be BS'd. Um, yeah. yeah. 
yeah. when I go somewhere. I'd like to, I, I wish I could have someone tell me the honest truth. And this is out of my own, own experience. I probably trust them more than I would if someone's trying to actively sell something to me. It's not that I'm, I feel like by, by doing it the way I'm doing it, the instruments sell better than if I'm overbearing and pushing. And I like that. I respect that. You're an honest broker. I'm really enjoying talking with you so much so that I have this perhaps cockamamie idea for a game I want to play with you. Okay. Will you be down to play a game with me? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's kind of like a word association game. In fact, it is a word association game. I'm going to share with you a word or a phrase, and I'm going to ask you to explore how this word or this phrase informs your work. Okay? Okay. Okay. First word, research. How does research inform what you do? What does research have to do with your work? Everything. Everything. How much time do you spend on average in a given week just looking at reading about fine instruments? It varies. I mean, once, I, once I've started a project, I will keep doing research. It's mostly in the beginning of a, a project. Or if I have an instrument that someone has given me and wants information about it, then I will spend time doing the research on it. And it can go from a couple hours to way too much time. You can fall down the rabbit hole yeah. of research. There are weeks where you spend 10 or 20 hours reading and researching and looking at pictures. There have been those weeks. Most yeah. weeks, it's It's, a it's few been hours. a couple hours. Okay. It has a lot to do with research, your work. I didn't know that. Well, I, I make it about, I, I, that's the one part of it that I really like. All right. Well, I like it too, as someone who loves to fall down rabbit holes and loves to research. There's one more thing we have in common. You've brought it up a couple of times. What does patience have to do with your work? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah there, I mean. It's hard, right? Yeah. It's probably as hard as doing a podcast <laughs> with me. <laughs> oh, come on. You're doing great. I'm really enjoying this. Um, do you struggle with patience in your work? Yes. I mean, it comes back to the shoot first, ask question later. That's a result of your being impatient or struggling for patience. Well, it depends. If it's, if it's what facet of the job I'm doing. If, if it's, if it's a repair job, the patience is there because it has to be there. Uh -huh. I'm working with a customer. I enjoy doing it. So the patience is there. Okay. Where's the part where you struggle with patience? Cause you said it like you, you, you tend to struggle with patience. Is it at what point in the process do you find yourself getting most impatient? When I feel it's mostly impatient with myself. When I, I feel like I'm not creating what I see in my head or what I want to create or, yeah, impatience with myself would be the, the main part of it. And that, that's a constant area of improvement to, to gain patience. Yeah. You're, you're working to make fine instruments and you haven't figured out a way 
yet to be patient with yourself in that process. You're patient with others when they come into the shop. Yeah, right? but that's different. It's different. So you have <laughs> patience, but you can you can be impatient with yourself. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, me too. If you ever figured anything out about that, please tell me. I need all the help I can get when it comes to patience. Um, oh, here's a word. I like this. It's related, maybe. Experimentation. What does experimentation have to do with your work? Sound adjustments. Sound adjustments. Just tinkering. Getting in there. I mean, among, among other things, but that would be the first thing I can think of. Yeah. I got to say, when you were talking about sound adjustments, I both feel like that sounds really compelling as a process to engage in with someone. It's sort of like this quiet thing where you're like listening very closely to an instrument. And for that reason, it's compelling, but also like that's some more where I might find myself impatient with a client. Like, especially if like, if I feel like I know the sound that is optimal, but I really like the way you spoke about your patience in that process of experimentation. Well, that's one thing you have to throw out the window. I, of course I have my preference in sound, Yeah, but you have to try and understand the preference in sound that the customer has or the player has. Oh, that sounds so hard. I have so much respect for you that you have patience for that process of experimentation. Well, again, it's, it's learning. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. Are you having fun with the game? Can we keep going? Yeah. I have. A, I wrote down a couple of words while you were talking before, and this is where the game comes from. You had mentioned briefly, like you're talking about like the flow. What does your work have to do with the flow? The shape of the instrument, the flow of the actual working process, how my chisel, gouge, knife moves through the wood, and the finished product. If you, if I feel like I'm in the zone where, where things are just moving along, not too fast, not too slow. How does that feel? Great. It's the best, right? Yeah. Can you enjoy it when you're in it, when you're in the flow? Can you dig it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I have days, sometimes even if I'm lucky, a week where it really just flows. Yeah. The hardest part is for me, changing projects. So if I'm in the middle of making an instrument and then I have to do something else, whether it's business, taxes, repair jobs. <laughs> taxes. Taxes. I guess you can't even put taxes and repair job because it's one I hate and one I actually like to do. Yeah. But you it, mixing it up and getting... Yeah. It's a theme on this podcast, how like the toggling of tasks can interrupt flow. And of course, for you as not just a fine instrument maker, but as a business person who's managing like an actual business, has an employee, has to pay taxes, has to pay rent, has to deal with the landlord and all of that. There's like a lot of different things you have to have on your mind and it interrupts the flow, right? Yeah. You know, you, you were um, talking earlier about your striving for perfection and that imagine that when things are flowing, you get closer to creating a more perfect instrument. If you will let me say the words more perfect. How does the pursuit of perfection inform your work? I guess it's everything. 
It's everything. Yeah. I mean, that's, that comes back to patience. I mean, it, I'm constantly trying to create a better instrument. Yeah. It's how I try and live my life. It's just how I am, which is sometimes a struggle because it would be nice to just be content with something that I've made right off the bat. Yeah. But it also gives me, I feel like it, it always pushes me to go further. You're a hyper motivated person. I'm starting to learn. I don't think I realized quite how much the pursuit of excellence really animates you it has created a lot of i don't want to say problems but or issues surrounding that yeah there's stress there's anxiety yeah well i mean i don't want to put words in your mouth but i'm going to ask you if the following statement is true it dawns on me in listening to you that the motivation the stress the desire for perfection is not entirely self-serving. If I'm hearing what you're saying today correctly, it has, I want to say, everything to do with trying to create a fine instrument for someone so that they can play it, so that they can bring beautiful music into the world, right? That's what seems to animate you most. Is that close to true? It's pretty close to the truth. Yeah. So you're striving for perfection and you're trying to get into the flow and you're doing it, sure, on some level because you're trying to create the best possible thing, but you're trying to create the best possible thing for someone else. And as I'm walking myself through that sentence, through that set of ideas, it strikes me that there are other people in this field who are trying to do the same. There are some amazing violin makers out there, and a lot of them are in Germany. They're in Northern Italy. Like, you're in the heart of it here. Do you struggle at all with what I'm loosely going to call imposter syndrome? Never. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's hard. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's hard, but it, luckily this community is for the most part really supportive. Cool. Especially the newer generations. That's cool to hear. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad it's not too cutthroat. Now you kind of grew up in kind of like more of a punk scene with more of a punk ethos, but you're making fine instruments you're making violins violas occasionally a cello does your like punk ethos upbringing show itself at all in the way you approach your work decades later you still a punk at heart are you a punk violin maker <laughs> punk <laughs> be honest punk i think i struggle with experimenting and being different it's been a relatively conservative view that you make a Strad model, you make a Guarneri model, you don't veer left and right. And for years, I didn't try and veer too much off the beaten track. I feel like now I'm 
slowly moving and finding freedoms in different parts of the making process where I'll try something new or try the opposite of what I learned in school or experiment more with the making aspect or any other aspect of the business. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason I ask, because I know it's kind of like in a way on its face, sort of a, a foolish question. Like the, the punk ethos was really a DIY ethos and it was really like kind of a repudiation of conservative values. And I'm looking around the shop and you're DIYing, right? You're doing it yourself and you're doing it in your own way, right? And you're trying to find a new path. And so that's why I was sort of curious about. I try to find my own path, but it's interesting because like I said earlier with the customer, when the customer comes in, I, I want them to focus on one thing and that's the instrument and not really much else else yeah not the history not the expectations just feel the thing hear the thing try to isolate that yeah Yeah. cool well it brings me tremendous joy to to know that there's a, a real community here that it's not too cutthroat it's not too competitive i was afraid you were going to say it was i'm glad that that's not the case that you get to work with people who you trust and who you enjoy and with whom you share this passion for fine instrument making. And it makes me happy to know that there's a little punk left in you, old man. (laughs) Uh, But I, at the same time, you've alluded to the fact that what you do can be a bit stressful. What's the stressful part of violin making? The stressful part of violin making for me would be that I'm always trying to be better. And it's the stressful part. It's also the good part. It's also the great part. But I would say in short that that would be the stressful part of violin making. And like not maybe knowing ever if you're good enough or... Yeah. 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 And you're really the only judge of that. That's hard. Well, I mean, a lot of the, for example, antiquing of the instrument, there are some customers and musicians that understand it to a, to a higher level, but, but I mean, it's, I go so far as to copy the inside of the instrument, which very few players will ever see. And that's basically just... I guess for other makers or are you like it's a bunch wicked of... obsessive about this whole thing? Are you yeah, a, yeah you're yeah, an obsessive. Yeah. yeah. And me too. That's maybe how we found each other. I feel you. All right. We should try to drive this train into the station. How do we do that exactly? You know, maybe we do it this way because I'm wondering given the stresses that you've spoken about directly and alluded to in our conversation, given your obsessiveness and given how far you've kind of come from, you know, your, your DIY punk roots to your DIY violin making, how do you see your work as 
a fine instrument maker evolving over the next, say, decade or two? I hope that I won't ever get caught up in my own way of thinking and that I will always keep learning. And if I reach a point where I feel like I'm not learning anymore, I should probably stop. Yeah. I don't know if that was answered your question, but... So you see your path forward as it's always been. Constant evolving. Constant obsessing. Constant stress? No. Hopefully less stress. Keeping the intensity, keeping the obsessiveness. Keeping the intensity, but also hopefully finding a place at some point where I can be just as passionate and just as, I guess, obsessed with what I'm doing with less stress. Yeah. I wish that for you, my friend. I do. And I think that's a poetic hope to wrap up on. But you've listened to enough of these here podcasts to know that I can't let you go without having you satiate my love for stories. Can you just share with me and with our listeners the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? And as we do, we'll start with the failure so we can wrap in a note of triumph. The failure, I would say, is one big story of maybe bringing my stress home. Yeah. And not leaving it in the shop. Having it affect sometimes my happiness and my daily life. Yeah. There was a cat on the podcast. I don't know if you're listening to this one. It, it was the season opener of the ninth season of the podcast. The guy's name is Zach Dobeck, and he's an air traffic controller. As you might imagine, there's some stress in that job. (laughs) So much so that they force you to retire at 56. Full pension. And he was talking about how in order to mitigate his stress and anxiety and frustration between the time he leaves O'Hare Airport and his house, he'll blare his favorite songs on his playlist in the car ride home just to like, you know, get the yayas of the day out. And uh, I don't know, maybe that's your path. But I feel you, man. I think we've all been guilty, if I may, of bringing our work home. And that's just, I don't know, man, maybe that's just like the price you pay for being passionate and being obsessive and striving for perfection. Like, it's hard to just turn that off, you know? Um, so I feel you. I feel you. It's a failure. It's hitting real close to home. Let's talk about the success. Having gone out on my own and started my own shop, and even though it feels like I still have a long way to go, I would say that that would be my greatest success. Yeah. I was kind of hoping you would say that. I don't know if you noticed, like, right after I asked the question, I started kind of looking around the room, and I was like, this is pretty great. Congrats, man. Thank you. I'm real happy for you. It's pretty awesome. And that should be enough. I almost forgot. I I was hoping just to bid each other farewell. You might recommend to our listeners 
something that 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 illustrates or, or otherwise influences your work. It could be anything, but it should be something for our listeners that somehow speaks to what you do for a living. I would say finding something that you really love to do and that you could, in a healthy way, yeah. think about for the rest of your life and keep doing and keep going and keep evolving your craft, your passion, your business, etc. Yeah. Well, I, for one, am very happy for you that you found exactly that. I'm also happy that you're willing, after my years of begging, to join me in conversation on the podcast. Jacob Veit Mueller, thanks for being on For a Living. Thank you. Thanks for the patience. <laughs> We did it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a great conversation. Go us. <laughs> All right. All right, kids. That was me in studio with Jacob Weitmuller. If you enjoyed this conversation and you want to do your part to share these conversations with real working people, do me a favor. Take a second. Think about your favorite episode. Maybe you just like the guest. Maybe the work intrigued you or somehow mystified you. Maybe the conversation left a mark on you. Maybe it was this episode. Whatever the case may be, here's what I want you to do. Think about a person in your life who might share your interest in the episode. Copy the link and send the episode to that person. That's how you could help me. You could also go over to Patreon. It's up to you. All right, kids, school's almost out. Hugh Alice Cooper, and I'm out. I'll be back in two weeks with a professor of Afro-German history and culture, my pal, Dr. Tiffany Florville. You are not going to want to miss that episode. Dr. Tiffany is legit. Mind-blowing stuff. Take care, y'all. Talk with you soon. <laughs>